Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome back to Women Belong in the House. After all, Ginger Rogers did everything that Fred Astaire did. She just did it backwards and in high heels. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. In these first few episodes, we're talking about why there are fewer women in office and why often women don't want to run. Last week, we talked about different motivations for running with my mom, Kathy Manning, who's running in North Carolina District 13. If you missed it, go check it out. This week, we're talking about money. Let's start by setting the stage. As we alluded to in the first episode, Money is an obstacle that can keep women from running. I know from my mom's experience that campaigning involves 24-7 fundraising. Before we get into why that is, let's talk broadly about campaign finance. It's really expensive to run for office. Congressional races in 2016 were pricier than ever, totaling more than $4 billion compared to $3.8 billion in 2014, according to the Center for Responsive Politics. Candidates for the House spent $1.5 million each on average, including outside spending in 2016. 14% of that came from outside groups. So where does all that money come from? Individuals are allowed to donate $2,700 per candidate during the primary and $2,700 per candidate during the general election. So combined, that means that an individual could give a candidate $5,400 in an election cycle. Those limits don't matter, though, for political action committees, or PACs. PACs were founded after regulations were put on unions and corporations that prevented them from giving to campaigns. These days, we hear a lot about super PACs. The era of super PACs really began after the 2010 Supreme Court case Citizens United v. FEC. Today, the Supreme Court of Chief Justice John Roberts declared that because of the alchemy of its 19th century predecessors in deciding that corporations had all the rights of people, any restrictions on how these corporate beings spend their money on political advertising are unconstitutional. That decision said that corporations can spend an unlimited amount on messaging that encourages voters for or against candidates as long as that messaging isn't coordinated with the candidates or parties. Okay. So now that we've covered our bases a bit, let's talk about why money is a particular challenge for candidates who are women. Pretty much women raise about the same amount of money as men do in comparable races. That's Debbie Walsh. She's the director of the Center for American Women in Politics. I talked to her about all this at the Eagleton Center for Politics at Rutgers University. What we do think is that it may be harder for women to raise that money. They tend to come into politics from less moneyed networks. And it might take them 10 phone calls to raise $1,000, where a man might make one phone call and raise it. Campaign funds are really important. Money is what allows campaigns to shoot commercials and air them on TV. 
It allows them to send mail to voters in the district and to pay salaries on the campaign. Having way less money than your opponent in a race is a scary place to be. Nobody likes to ask for money. Uh, I've yet to meet an office holder, male or female, who thinks what I love to do more than anything else is ask people for money. But it may still be harder for women. It's not that fundraising is harder for every single woman than it is for every single man. I want to reiterate that every woman is different. That being said, the challenges to do with money in politics are related to broader gender-based inequities. Women are working full-time outside the home. They're the primary caregivers inside the home. Running for office is just a lot. I spoke with Christina Lefebvre-Latner to learn more. Christina teaches women's and gender studies at California Polytechnic State University. So why aren't more women running for office is kind of the bigger question. And one of the big things is resources. It's the resources before they even begin to think about running. And so that goes back to an even bigger dilemma and bigger issues related to things like gender roles, gender roles in workforce, gender roles in families. Even now, even though it's improved, women tend to bear the greatest share of housework and child rearing. So when a woman is thinking about whether or not she can take on something else, she takes those things into consideration. She's taking care of the children more than someone else, or she's doing more laundry. She's got that double day of work. She's got a full-time job, and then she comes home and makes lunches. And then she thinks, well, I'm going to run for even something as small as city council. How can she think that she's going to do something like that? On top of that, women tend to make less money than men do. So now we're talking about resources related to income. There's a pay gap for women. It takes time to run for office and you have to be making a good deal of money to be able to say and in a good position that you feel comfortable that where you can say, I'm going to take six months off. Childcare is so expensive and not just children, but many people are like myself. I'm the sandwich generation. I've got a 13-year-old, I've got a nine-year-old, and I also have an aging mom who lives with us. So um, if I run for office, if I'm going to be out camping, Painting, who's going to take care of not just my children, but also my mom and get her to the doctor's appointments and things like that, too. We have to look at trying to get parity even within our households before we can get parity in Congress. One woman who decided to take that leap is our candidate of the week. I'm Betsy Rader, and I am running in Ohio's 14th district, which is Northeast Ohio. Betsy was born in 1961, 45 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress, and 41 years after women won the right to vote. She was born in Coshocton, Ohio, a part of the state that's considered to be Appalachia. My dad was a game warden, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And when I was nine, they divorced. And my mom only had a high school education and almost no work experience. So at that point, she had four kids, and she became a single parent and uh, really had a hard time finding jobs that paid enough to make ends meet. So we grew up really struggling. Betsy's mom was raising four children on $6,000 a year. The challenges Betsy faced then and the subsequent opportunities she seized really helped to shape her political perspective. I think that what it showed me is that you really need to make sure that there's a fair playing field that everybody has opportunities to succeed and it shouldn't just depend on what family you're born into. It shouldn't depend on any other arbitrary factors either, like your color of your skin or who you love. For me, it was really important 
that we had a good public school system and teachers who really cared about making sure that I did have opportunities, who encouraged me to go to college, who helped me apply for scholarships to college. Those are opportunities my even my brothers didn't necessarily have sometimes, but I had people who reached out and helped me along the way. And so that's one thing that's really informed both my volunteer work and my career, as well as my desire to run for Congress, is this, you know, need to make sure that it's not just up to luck whether or not you get opportunities, that we have a structured way to support people having chances in this life. The topic of politics wasn't always top of mind for Betsy's family growing up. There just wasn't time to focus on it. My family did not talk about politics. And, you know, I think that's one issue in our democracy is when you're having to devote all your time and attention to finding daycare for your kids and trying to make rent and finding a place to live. There's not a lot of opportunity and time to engage in things like political activism. We were very focused on very day-to-day concerns in my family. She thought she was going to become a professional musician, but discovered a different talent when she joined the high school debate team. I played a lot of different instruments and always thought I would be a musician, but again, a lack of resources. You know, we really couldn't afford the private lessons to get me to a bigger city, to move up in terms of my training. And so, you know, careers like being a professional musician really requires some resources a lot of the time. And I had started to see that that was a problem. And I was on the debate team and doing very well, you know, winning awards and stuff around the state of Ohio and started thinking more and more that I could use that set of skills, those advocacy skills, those research skills to make a difference in the world. It's interesting. Uh, Back, I was in high school in the 70s. And for instance, I remember two of our topics. One was, should we have a national health care system? That was the national topic one year. Uh, Another year, it was something to do with a national energy policy and looking at alternative energy. And so that gave me an opportunity that I hadn't really had at home to think about those really essential policy sorts of topics and led to me getting interested. Wow, kind of wild that those were the same issues, <laughs> that you debated those two issues and they're so relevant right now. Isn't it? It's it's really funny. I actually, in the course of the campaign, reconnected with my high school debate partner who lives in New York now with his husband. Yeah, we were reminiscing about the fact that these were issues we needed to solve in the 1970s. And we are still really just at the beginnings of adequately addressing those issues. Betsy went to the Ohio State University. While she was there, she spent a summer interning for the Jimmy Carter campaign. That's when she first came into contact with campaign finance regulations. It was his reelection campaign. And interestingly, again, in terms of issues that are still at the forefront, that was when they had just created the Federal Election Commission. The campaign finance laws, I believe, they were pretty new then. It was before computers. And I recall part of my job as an intern was to go down to the FEC headquarters every day 
and pick up these sheets of paper of people who had donated. And I'm not even really sure what they used them for, but I was a very low level intern. And again, that was an opportunity I got because Ohio State, I was in the honors program and the head of the honors program really recruited me to get that sort of an experience. You know, we never went on family vacations or anything. I'd never visited Washington, D.C. as a kid. And that was a really great opportunity for me. Betsy had already decided to pursue a career in law. In terms of choosing law, it was the idea that when you were a lawyer, you had some element of control. And that's what I really felt as a kid. Like people just made the decisions about our lives. And my mom and us kids didn't really have any control over the situation. And for instance, you know, a landlord kicked us out of a house once because he wanted to give it to his daughter to live in. And that wasn't illegal or anything, but you just felt so powerless over even where you got to live. And I saw lawyers as having this tool that they could use to enforce the laws, to obtain rights for people, to, to make things right and have some control and some power. And I really liked that idea being able to do that, not just for myself, but for other people. So one of the things I really focused on when I went to law school was legal aid clinics. And I sat on the board of Cleveland Legal Aid for eight years because it provides free legal services to low-income people who otherwise really couldn't enforce their rights. And so, you know, that element of having a voice, having some say in your destiny, I think that's really important to everyone because you become hopeless when you don't think you have a say, when you don't think you have control. And hopelessness is, I think, what has led to things like in Ohio, the opioid crisis. And that's what I think is really important we do as politicians and as a government is let people know there is hope and we're going to invest in you and we're going to help you and not just leave you to your own devices because it's not always possible to just do it on your own. Betsy worked at the law firm Squire, Sanders & Dempsey in Cleveland. She served as director of an advocacy program for abused children, and she worked in healthcare, including as senior counsel for the Cleveland Clinic. Now she's a civil rights attorney. As I said in the last episode with my mom, Betsy's resume alone makes her a great candidate, but her decision to run wasn't just based on what she's done. It was solidified by several pivotal moments that caused Betsy to say it's time to stand up. Like many women I've spoken to, Betsy was moved by the 2016 election and the subsequent Women's March. Well, I think a lot of us felt that when Donald Trump was elected, it was a reflection that some of our voices were not being heard and beyond that were being completely disrespected. And so we had the Women's March, which I think was a physical manifestation of that feeling that not only have you elected somebody with whom I disagree, but you have elected somebody who totally disrespects me and doesn't care about my voice. You know, I I wouldn't say that just his election made me think about running for Congress, but it certainly started the wheels turning. I heard from friends who had never been involved in politics before, or if they had been involved in politics, they'd they'd been Republicans. Watching that feeling that they had of, of being ignored, of disrespect, 
of losing all control. That's just, it goes back to this feeling of, do you have any say? Do you have a voice? Do you have control over your life, over your body? And when I I was in Cleveland for the march, when I looked around and I saw I was next to women who had never been politically engaged before, who were feeling just as strongly or as more strongly than me that we had lost our voice in this democracy. And they were out there, even though you know, they had relatives who maybe would not be happy to see them out there. They, it was like a really brave step for them. And so that was inspiring to be with these women who were maybe making their husbands unhappy or their relatives unhappy by going out there and making clear how they felt about all this. And so I think there was an energy, there was an inspiration and seeing how many people were feeling that same way and the need to make sure that that carried forward because that was you know kind of the concern as people came out then the question was would people give up hope again you know and i feel like that's really been part of the strategy for some of the people who are in control right now is to create so much chaos so much division uh so much emotional tension that you would cause people to be hopeless. You would cause people to despair. And you know, how many times can you march? How many times can you protest? How many times can you call your senator or your congressman? I think they're trying to wear us out. And so it was really important then to see that amount of energy and now to continue to see people summoning the energy again and again and again, because I think most people have tended to be like, you know, my family was growing up. You know, you're worried about paying the bills, getting the kids to soccer practice, you know, doing good at your job. How much energy do you have left over to make sure that democracy continues to exist? And people are finding that energy and summoning that energy. And I think it all started back there with the Me Too movement and with the Women's March and women feeling like they can speak up, they will speak up, and they will persist. The swell of energy and activism helped push Betsy towards running. But it was the fact that people in office were enacting policies that could hurt her community and hurt her family that pushed her over the edge. When they started trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act, I had a background in healthcare at the Cleveland Clinic and Medicare. And I was out there at the protests in front of my congressman's office. He had campaigned on repealing the ACA, voted 31 times to repeal it. So we were out there trying to talk to him. I was with a lot of people who had very poignant stories and he wouldn't meet with us and wouldn't give us even that respect. And so then I started really seriously exploring uh, running for Congress because that had been a problem in our district that we have a congressman who won't do town halls, who's really just kind of gone Washington. And so then I was seriously exploring it and I've got three kids in their 20s and my two sons are both gay. And I heard on the news one morning that the Trump administration was arguing that the Civil Rights Act shouldn't apply to them and that employers should be allowed to discriminate against them just because of who they love. And then I heard that the Trump administration was going to argue in the Masterpiece Cape Shop decision that businesses should be allowed not to do business with them and should even be allowed to put signs in the windows saying that my sons aren't welcome there. 
And I came down that morning (laughs) after hearing that on the radio upstairs and told my husband, we're going to do this. It is worth anything they can throw at us. It is worth any amount of work. If I can make a difference for my sons and for other people whose voices are being ignored in this country. Betsy's drive to action was personal. The voices of her community were being ignored and the rights of her sons were threatened. Now she's applying her determination to enact change in her campaign across the district. And Ohio's 14th district has a little bit of everything. The district is interesting. It's the suburbs of Cleveland and Akron. So I've got the eastern kind of outering suburbs of Cleveland, the northern suburbs of Akron, and then it goes out to a more rural area out to the Pennsylvania border, and it goes along Lake Erie. The Cleveland Clinic is the biggest employer in Northeast Ohio. Of course, I used to work there. There are also a lot of other healthcare employers in Northeast Ohio, so that's a really important sector of the economy. Uh, You also have manufacturing, and then you have farming out in the more rural areas of the district. It's kind of a microcosm of America in some ways, except we don't have any big cities in the district. The biggest cities in the district have like 40,000 people in them. And a lot of people live out in this area because it's really beautiful. It's got some like rolling hills. It's got Lake Erie. Uh, We have really great park systems. There are certain issues that Betsy hears about from constituents all over the map. Those include health care, prescription drug prices, and pre-existing conditions. When Trump recently, his administration again now, is arguing that it's unconstitutional for pre-existing conditions to be covered under the Affordable Care Act, I literally had people in tears, uh, particularly people whose children have pre-existing conditions of various types. Because that's that's a life sentence for their kids. It, it could bankrupt the family now, but it means their kids' futures are always going to be limited by the fact that they had the, the bad luck uh, to be born with some sort of a health condition. From the conversations I've had with candidates, the common threat of health care extends beyond Betsy's district all over the country. And the fear of losing insurance based on having a pre-existing condition feels particularly real to me. I actually have a pre-existing condition, so it's something that I worry about a lot. As discussed earlier, money in politics is another issue that extends beyond district borders. It's one of the main things Betsy's talking about on the trail. Well, the the hardest thing is big money in politics. It's one of the main things that I'm talking about in the campaign is the need for campaign finance reform. So the problem that you have is there's this dark money. You don't even know where it's coming from. And it's putting millions of dollars into electing certain people to office. That uh, means that they get their message out. Again, it's, it's having a voice. It's having control. So the problem is, is that you have organizations, uh, people, and maybe even countries funneling money into elections. And their voices are loud and strong and well-funded. And it's really hard for people to sort through the different messages, especially when they don't know what motivations might be behind the messages. That's why transparency is important. So at least it's still hard, but at least you have a chance to figure out uh, how to critically evaluate a message if you know who's providing the message. And so, you know, I worry about that. And it's hard to raise the money. I'm not taking corporate PAC money and I'm not taking NRA money. And I am doing it all through individuals. I am not a wealthy person who can self-fund. 
and you worry, you know, are you going to be able to get your message out or is it going to be drowned out by big money that comes in on the other side where you don't even know who's behind it? And our democracy, I think, is really being tested by that issue. That's why I think it's really important as soon as we get this new Congress in that we enact really significant campaign finance reform so that we don't keep facing this this challenge that's not a reasonable challenge. It's not a challenge that existed to this degree before the decision and end Citizens United. I know from my mom's experience that fundraising for a campaign is never ending, especially when candidates pledge not to take funds from corporate PACs. And as we heard earlier, fundraising may be even harder for women. I do think that's true. You know, I think it's true for a number of reasons. Of course, myself, I took time off to have children. I took a time off to be part-time and did a lot of community volunteer work. And that's not the same as sitting on corporate boards or sitting on, you know, fancy nonprofits that have wealthy people who sit on their boards. You don't make the same connections. You know, I love my connections, but, you know, they're they're not necessarily people with high net worths that can write huge checks. I know one thing that happened when I first started is I had what they call a Rolodex. You know, I had this big list of contacts, but my contacts were people who could contribute $100 not $5,400. It takes a lot of $100 donations to add up to $5,400. So what, you know, maybe a, a man who had been operating at those levels might be able to do with one phone call would take me hundreds of phone calls. The challenge of raising money is part of a broader economic infrastructure in the U.S. that makes it harder for women to run. I spoke with Michael Latner to learn more. He's an associate professor in the political science department at Cal Poly. He's also Christina Lefebvre-Latner's husband. The fact that the United States has less of a support system makes it more difficult for women to run uh, for office because women are the primary providers in terms of childcare and day-to-day household duties. That takes time and it takes resources. And if you don't have a social safety net that facilitates childcare and the like, it makes it more difficult for women to run. Uh, Similarly, when you look at pay equity issues, the inequality between women's pay and uh, men's pay has a lot to do with industries and occupations. And the type of uh, industries and occupations that men tend to work in, specifically in more management positions, those sorts of occupations also tend to be more tightly tied into financial networks that facilitate contributions and donations to campaigns. And women have a harder time raising campaign funds than men do, uh, which also makes it more difficult for them to effectively run for office. We have basically a privatized campaign finance system, and so you've got to be good at raising money to run for office. Here's Betsy again. The other thing that was interesting is that I know when I first started, people told me, well, ask for a large amount because people will be embarrassed to say they can't afford it. I think maybe that's more the case when a man's talking to a man, like maybe when a man's calling a fellow businessman and says, you know, I need a thousand dollars. You know, maybe the guy on the other side doesn't want to say, well, I can't afford a thousand dollars to this guy he golfs at the club with or whatever, you know, so maybe he'll fork it up rather than embarrass himself. With me, I found when I ask people for money, they are happy to tell me all their travails and why they cannot afford to donate to me. And so sometimes I wonder if, you know, being a woman, maybe people feel more comfortable letting you know. I mean, I like hearing about 
their lives and and the challenges they face. But um, I do sometimes wonder if it makes them more comfortable saying no to a woman than they would to a man. There are a lot of structural barriers in terms of fundraising and networking and, you know, with a PAC system and um, willingness to support different candidates. That's Amanda Hunter. She's the communications director at the Barbara Lee Family Foundation. In case you missed it in the last episode, Here's what she had to say on difficulties of the old school political way. Traditionally, there was the old boys club of having the country club or different private clubs and networking groups and access to other men that would support them in a way that women simply didn't have. Of course, that's changing all the time. And there are a lot of stories about PACs and groups where women support other women, but they simply don't have the history that men have in that regard. Some of the women in Congress are trying to change that. Congresswoman Sherry Bustos from Illinois' 17th District told me about how she and her peers are working to ensure women candidates have access to training and funds. She came up with the idea for an organization called Build the Bench. It serves as a boot camp for potential candidates to learn how to run for office. Sherry's paid for the program out of her leadership pack. She knows the importance of helping women who run. The cost of being a candidate actually almost stopped her from entering her first house race. It was a very complicated process for me to figure out how I was going to be able to do this. I worked in healthcare, and that's what I was doing at the time. I was in healthcare for about 10 years. I had a really good job financially, and I was really the major earner for my family at that point. So to just quit that job, and when you're running for Congress, it is not a part-time deal. You have to raise money to make sure you have the resources to get your messaging out. My congressional district is very large. It's 7,000 square miles, 14 counties. So to get every place that you need to go and make sure you have the resources to win this, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to do this for five hours a week or 10 hours a week. So I tried to figure out, could I quit my job? Well, we figured out financially we couldn't afford to do that. So I got back to the folks at the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee and I said I was not going to be able to work it out. So they began talking to other people. My sister, who I'm very close with, she said, I heard that you were asked to run for Congress. And I said, well, I can tell you now, yes, I I was looking at it, but I just can't figure it out. And she goes, why? And I said, well, I can't figure out the money part of it, how I'm going to make a living. And she goes, we will figure this out. You have to do this. You were made to do this. You'll hear more from Sherry later in the season. It's exciting to see new energy and money being put behind women candidates. But the challenge with campaign finance reform generally is that any kind of reform has to come from Congress. And people in Congress may not be keen on cutting off sources of election funds. Betsy says there may be hope for campaign finance reform if more diverse candidates get elected. I never like to make things just a gender issue because I think that there are women who are excellent and have those networks and raise lots of money and have, you know, maybe started out with a great Rolodex. So that's not necessarily a gender thing completely in terms of how they'll feel about this issue when they get to Congress. And, you know, we see in all sorts of arenas that there are women on both sides of many issues. But I do think that, you know, women do bring a different set of experiences to the table as a whole. Not every single one. There'll always be exceptions. But as a whole, women have often had to deal with the same issues. And, you know, maybe there'll be other women like me who've dedicated themselves more to non-paid work than to paid work in the course of their lives, for instance. And that just brings a different set of sensitivities to the table. 
Debbie Walsh spoke to that topic. You had the woman out in New York who went to the FEC and said, I need to be able to use my campaign money for campaign-related childcare expenses. And they granted her that. And, you know, whether she wins or loses her election come November, it's an important statement for women, frankly, for people who run, who might not have the disposable income to run and pay for the kind of child care you might need to run for office. People who are running for office also have the same regular money concerns that plague people who aren't running, too. Campaigning is a full-time job. That makes it particularly important to have a strong support system. I would say one piece of advice I would give to any candidate, but maybe particularly women, but it probably applies pretty much equally to everyone, is it's really important to have a family that's behind you. My husband is such a key supporter for me. This is very consuming both time, and it means I've had to give up earning an income during this period. And I certainly can't imagine doing this if I had a spouse that was not 110% on board. And your kids. And that's one thing I really thought about when I decided to run was this fair to do to my kids. Now, you know, they're grown and out of the house by and large, but I I really wanted to make sure they were on board, that they knew their privacy might be violated, especially my two sons who are gay. And they were all, again, 110% on board. And that, that really makes a difference. I have to say my one son, my oldest, is a ballet dancer. And he has a contract with the company, but, you know, ballet dancers do not earn much money. And a couple months ago, he donated $1,000 to my campaign. And I was like, honey, uh, you know, he's working all these side jobs to make ends meet. He lives in Seattle, which is very expensive. I'm like, honey, $1,000, you know, you can't afford this. And he says, well, mom... I was, you know, he's been trying to save. He was going to put it in an IRA for his future. But he says, I don't know if I'm going to have a future if people like you don't get elected to Congress. So I want my $1,000 to go to you. And obviously that was very meaningful to me. People all over the country are putting not just money, but also time and energy into supporting candidates that they feel represent them. The movement is catching. Still, It won't mean anything if people don't get up and do something about it in November. What's great is to see how many people are engaged in democracy. You know, I think that what we sometimes forget is that there is a reason why we are the longest standing democracy in the world. And over the course of time, democracies have not thrived. It really takes people to be engaged and to educate themselves and to participate. Democracy doesn't just happen. You have to work at it. And people like to quote Martin Luther King about the arc of the universe bends towards justice, but it only bends towards justice if you push it. What's been exciting, especially the past few weeks, as we're gearing up our field operations and knocking on doors to get out the vote, is seeing how many people are showing up. That's how this country has to work. We have to talk to each other and we have to get out of our comfort zone And we have to vote. The cost of running for office is a major hurdle for any candidate. It's a particular challenge for women and people of color. Next week, we're keeping the money talk going, but focusing on a group of women that seem somewhat absent. Republicans. There's a stark contrast between the number of Republican women and the number of Democratic women running for office this election. 
the success rates of the two groups in primaries are also shockingly different. So what's the deal? Why is the GOP sort of missing the boat here when it comes to promoting women candidates? There's a fundamental ideological difference, which is the Democratic Party embraces the concept of identity politics, right? And they can talk about that and they can fundraise around that and they can recruit candidates around that. Republicans really shy away from the concept of identity politics. So if you look at polling and you look at the difference between Democrats and Republicans, Democrats, particularly Democratic women, say it's important to elect women candidates. It's important to have diversity. It makes things better for our country. Republicans, on the other hand, including an And even in some cases, especially Republican women say no, it's not that important to elect women to office. More on that coming to you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and tell your friends. And if you didn't enjoy it, let me know. Let's start a conversation. This movement's all about reaching out to the other increasing empathy for opposing viewpoints, and sharing in the quest for justice and progress. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week.